Uh, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, so we've been going through the book of Exodus for some time under the title From Bondage to Belonging because that's the journey that God brought the Israelites out of bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt to a place where they would learn what it means to belong to him as God's very own people uh, loved and cared for and guided by him. And what we're doing now is we're in the middle of uh, one of the perhaps more well-known sections of Exodus, the Ten Commandments. And so we're taking each of these commandments one by one uh, and looking at each of them in depth. Um, so today we're looking at the Sixth Commandment. Uh, uh, the interesting thing about the Ten Commandments is if you read in Genesis 1, there are ten times where God says, let there be where God is creating and shaping and forming the world. Then, earlier in the book of Exodus, there are ten plagues where God sort of uncreates the land of Egypt as an act of judgment when Pharaoh and the Egyptians refuse to listen to God. But the Ten Commandments are God sort of reshaping and reforming the people of Israel and saying, I've created you, and here is what I want you to be. Here is how I want you to live. Uh, so that's sort of how the Ten Commandments come in the story of the Bible. Uh, but let me read. I'm going to actually read beginning at verse 1 all the way to verse 13, but we're looking at verse 13 today. Chapter tw Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Of all the Ten Commandments, the sixth, you shall not murder, is probably the most obvious one of all. In every nation on planet Earth, murder is a crime, and at least in principle, no one argues over whether that should be the case. No one argues that people in general should have the freedom to murder one another whenever they want without any consequences. Unlike other crimes, we know that murder is irreversible. Once a person's life is taken, there is nothing we can do to restore it or make it right. We don't have to engage in complicated ethical reasoning to arrive at the conclusion that murder is wrong. It's just one of those things that we as human beings just know. We can't deny it. Maybe that's why the command is stated in the way that it is. You might have noticed that the first five commandments, each of them has a preface or an explanation or a warning or a promise attached to it. But starting with number six, the commandments become very brief. 
In Hebrew, commandments six, seven, and eight are only two words each. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. They feel stark and blunt, straight and to the point, like an arrow slicing through the air and lodging directly in its target. No further explanation needed. Now you might ask, why don't I just end the sermon here? Don't kill anyone, that's all you need to know. Come back next week for number seven. Well, for a few reasons. First, if we stop here, none of us will have learned anything because so far I've only told you what you already know. Second, this command is simple and straightforward in some ways, but it has deep and broad implications which we ought to think about carefully. Third, the Ten Commandments are part of the bigger story in the Bible, and they make sense ultimately in light of that story. Now, as we've done with each of the Ten Commandments, I want to look at the Sixth Commandment under four headings. Number one, how it's a manual that shows us God's good design. Number two, how it's a mirror that shows us our sin. Number three, how it's a window that shows us our Savior. Number four, how it's a guide that shows us God's path. Now, if you're here for the first time, that might seem like an unusual way uh, to look at the Ten Commandments, but it's really just reading them in light of the whole story of the Bible. Because the overarching story of the Bible is a story in four parts. Part one, God made us. He designed us, and therefore he knows best how life ought to work. That's why this commandment is a manual that shows us God's good design. But the second act of the Bible is that we rebelled. Ever since the beginning of humanity, we tried to be our own gods. We tried to do things our own way, and that has not worked very well. It's led to all kinds of ruin and destruction. But third, thankfully, God sent his son Jesus to rescue us to rescue us from ourselves by living the life we ought to have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die and rising again so that through faith in him we might be restored to a right relationship with God. And so that's why this commandment will not only show us how we fall short, but it'll also point us to Jesus, our Savior. And finally, as people who have been rescued by Jesus and been made right with God, this command is uh, an instruction, a guide to show us God's path. So those are the four, uh, going to be the four headings we look at this command under. So number one, how is this command a manual that shows us God's good design? Well, as we've said on a very basic level, nearly all human beings would express agreement. This is a good command. But why, we might ask? Why is murder wrong according to the Bible? Now, if we just think on a purely human level, we can see murder as an offense against another individual human being whose life is taken away from them, or against their family and friends and loved ones who can never get that person back, or against society as a whole. The social contract has been violated and everyone feels less safe. And all of those things are true, but according to the Bible, murder is wrong for an even more significant reason. Murder is not only an offense against other human beings, it's also and most deeply an offense against God, the author and creator of life itself. Because according to the Bible, God made us in his own image. Genesis 1.27 says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the ancient world, it was common for kings or emperors to set up images of themselves, statues, usually a statue, in faraway provinces that they would not often visit, but that were under their control, that were part of their territory. 
The king's palace, where he normally lived, might be far away, but the image, the statue, meant that emperor is in charge even here. Even when you don't see him face to face, the image reminds you who is in charge here. And so back in the day, if you destroyed a statue of an emperor that he had set up in your town, you wouldn't just be punished for vandalism, you would probably be executed for treason. Because attacking the image of the emperor was an attack on the emperor himself. And so when the Bible says God created human beings in his own image, what it means is that even though we don't see God face to face, directly walking here on this earth, he has put us here, human beings, bearing his image as his representatives, as his ambassadors, as people who are, are, ought to represent that God is in charge. Therefore, destroying a living human being made in the image of God is an attack on God himself. God alone is the giver of life, and God alone is authorized to take away life. And therefore, murder is an attempt to wrongfully seize the authority that belongs to God alone. According to the Bible, murder is wrong not just as an offense against other human beings, but ultimately because it's an even greater offense against God who gave us all life in the first place. That's how this command reflects God's good design. But before we move on, we should define a little more, careful, a little more precisely what murder is. In other words, are there any circumstances when killing another human being is potentially morally justified? Now, in Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in, there are multiple words that refer to the taking of life. And the word that is here translated murder is only used in certain contexts. So the word is never used to describe the action of God or an angel, right? Because God gave us life in the beginning. God is the one who graciously sustains our lives moment by moment. And if God chooses to bring our earthly life to an end, God is not murdering us. No, God is only taking the life back that already belongs to him and that he graciously gave us in the first place. Also, the word murder is never used with reference to animals. So it's never used with reference to human beings slaughtering animals for meat. Uh, that's why this command doesn't require us all to be vegetarians. It's fine if you are a vegetarian. There's great vegetarian cuisine. There may be other reasons to be a vegetarian, but this command doesn't require that. It's also never used to describe killing in war. So this command all by itself doesn't resolve the question of exactly when war may be justified or what kind of actions in a war might be justified. And only once is it used to describe the death penalty, so it doesn't directly resolve that question either. So this commandment all by itself doesn't completely resolve all of the complicated moral dilemmas that confront us in a fallen world. Now, if we look at the rest of the Bible, there are three very limited situations in which, killing another in which killing another human being may be morally justified according to the Bible. The first situation would be a just war. Basically, waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with proportional and not disproportionate force minimizing civilian casualties. Of course, that raises all kinds of questions, but that's the first category. Uh, second category is the death penalty imposed by a judicial system in the case of premeditated murder. Third category is self-defense, when someone is trying to murder other people 
and the only way to stop them involves a risk of potentially killing them. Now, each of these issues gets very complicated very quickly, and I will not try to take the whole sermon this morning to sort through the ethics of just war, the death penalty, and self-defense. The reality is, over the history of Christianity, Christians have come to a range of different conclusions about how to navigate those issues. Uh, so one of my grandfathers served in the military without any reservations. My other grandfather was a conscientious objector, and so he assisted with the medical team during World War II. Each one was seeking to live out his faith in Christ and to apply the Bible's teachings according to his conscience. Uh, so this command is a manual that shows us God's good design, right? It doesn't resolve every one of our complicated ethical questions about how exactly should we live things out, uh, but it gives us a clear direction and a clear basic principle. But second, this command is a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, many people might object. How does this command show me that I have sinned? I may not have kept the other nine commandments perfectly, but at least I've kept this one. At least I haven't killed anyone. At least I'm righteous in this way. But Jesus would say, not so fast. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, that was a term of extreme contempt, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now what was Jesus saying here? He's taking the sixth commandment, don't murder, and he's applying it on a deeper and broader level. This he's saying this command is not just prohibiting the physical act of ending someone else's life. It's also prohibiting murderous words. Proverbs 12, 18 says, rash words are like sword thrusts. And James chapter 3 says, the tongue is like a fire, a restless evil full of deadly poison. And it's not just prohibiting murderous actions and words, it's addressing the intentions of our heart from which our words and actions flow. There are several accounts, stories of murder in the Bible. The Bible is very honest about human beings behave just because, how, just because the Bible tells us that something happened doesn't mean that it's approving of what happened. In many cases, it's the opposite. The Bible is showing us how deeply sin has affected the human race. So the first murder recorded in the Bible comes in Genesis chapter 4. It's when Cain killed his younger brother Abel. What motivated Cain to kill his brother? If you read the story, the answer is clear. Envy. God was pleased with Cain's little brother. God was not completely pleased with Cain. Cain didn't want to change his ways, and Cain's envy blossomed into rage, hatred, and finally murder. Later on, King Saul tried to kill David when David was one of his most loyal servants. Saul didn't succeed, but he tried multiple times. Why? Because of envy and contempt. David was more successful and more popular than Saul was, and Saul didn't like that. And then one of Saul's daughters fell in love with David, and he tried to twist that situation. Saul despised David. 
and every so often Saul's envy and contempt of David boiled over in, uh, into uncontrolled rage. So there are three or four episodes when Saul hurls a spear at David or pursues him out into the middle of the desert trying to find him and kill him. Later on, when David became king, he murdered Bathsheba's husband Uriah in an attempt to cover, on, cover up his own wrongdoing. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, so he arranged to have her husband, Uriah, conveniently killed on the front lines of the battle. Later on, King Ahab killed a man named Naboth because of greed. Ahab wanted Naboth's property. Naboth wouldn't sell it to him, so Ahab arranged to get him out of the way. Now, in all these stories, there are two common themes. Number one, they show how horrific and evil murder is. But number two, they show that all these murders were motivated by the very same sins that many people regularly indulge in. Envy, contempt, greed, vindictiveness, trying to cover up what one did wrong, our own wrongdoing, rather than fessing up about it. How many of us can say that we have never nursed a grudge? That we have never treated another person with contempt, that we have never justified our envy of someone else who has something that we just wish we could have. And that's not all. Martin Luther wrote this. This command is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. When he fails to protect, prevent, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. James 4.16 says, whoever knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus told a story of a man who, got, who was walking down a dangerous road, who got beaten up by some thieves and left half dead in the ditch. A priest and a Levite both walked by. And what did they do? Exactly nothing. They saw him, and they kept walking. He's not my responsibility. If I help this guy, I might get beat up too. Too complicated for me to get involved in. Better for me to keep my distance. Jesus said they both failed to love their neighbor as themselves. Not because they did anything actively harmful, but simply because they did nothing when they ought to have done something. 1 John 3 says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, when we fail to honor and love our fellow human beings that we, around us who are made in God's image, we have disobeyed this command, even if we have not done anything to actively harm them. In all those ways, this command is a mirror that shows us our sin. The ways that we have fallen short, whether in thought, desire, word, or deed. But third, the good news is that this command does not only show us where we fall short, it also points us to the one who came to save us 
from our sins and our shortcomings. Jesus Christ kept this command completely and consistently. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, throughout his life, there were plenty of people around Jesus who wanted Jesus to start a violent uprising for all sorts of reasons. There were plenty of people who provoked and antagonized him, but he never responded in kind. When Jesus was arrested, his disciple Peter picked up a sword and said, I'll defend you, Jesus, and he whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant who was standing nearby. And Jesus says, no, Peter, not that way. And Jesus didn't just refrain and tell his disciples to refrain from physical violence. He actively loved and honored and served the people around him, even those who opposed him. When Peter sliced off the guy's ear, the next thing Jesus did after rebuking Peter was to touch the man's ear and heal him. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus had been doing throughout his life. Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, casting out demons, preaching the good news, loving his enemies, doing good even to those who hated and opposed him. As Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus didn't just refrain from murder wherever he went. He caused life to flourish wherever he went. And yet, the one who caused life to flourish wherever he went had his own life taken away. Jesus kept this command perfectly, but he endured the consequences of humanity's disobedience to it. Jesus became an object of other people's hatred and contempt. He was stripped of his clothes, mocked and beaten and nailed to a tree on which he bled and suffocated and died. He came to bring life, but his life was unjustly taken from him. Now you might say, why would that be good news? Well, it's good news because Jesus, the innocent one, came to suffer and die in place of the guilty ones. And it's also good news because the story doesn't end with Jesus being brutally murdered. On the third day after he was crucified, the Savior who had been murdered rose from the grave as the victorious king. And now King Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who will turn to him. Whether we've disobeyed this command in thoughts, in our desires, in our words, or even in causing harm to others, King Jesus says, come to me and turn from your sin and I will give you life. 1 John 4, 9 says this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And it's not just talking about existing through him. It's talking about really living through him now and for eternity. That's why Jesus came. And that's why this commandment is good news because it's a window that shows us our Savior. Finally, this command is a guide that shows us God's path. When we realize and recognize that this is a good command, part of God's good design, and yet we've fallen short of it, in one way or another, and yet Jesus came and even died on our behalf that he might offer forgiveness and life to us. He even offered forgiveness to those who murdered him when he was hanging on the cross. 
He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't that amazing? But finally, this command is a guide that shows us God's path. As people who have been rescued from eternal death and given new life in Jesus, we can now spread that life to others. What might that look like? Recently, I've been reading a couple of books about the early church in the ancient Roman Empire, the sort of the first three centuries or so of, Christian, of Christianity. And during uh, this time, up until a little after 300 AD, Christians were a small minority. They had no political power. They were occasionally persecuted, and they were constantly in a precarious social position. And they lived in a culture where some lives were valued and other lives were not. In the ancient world, unwanted infants were often left out to die. Around 1 BC, a Roman soldier named Hilarion wrote a note to his wife. It's just a regular note. I'm in Alexandria on my military duty. I'm staying here. And then he says this. If you bear a child and it is a male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. Aristotle, one of the most influential philosophers of the ancient world, wrote this. As to exposing, that is, letting out to die, or rearing, that is, bringing up the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. In other words, he said, leave every disabled child out to die. Don't bother trying to raise them. It's not worth the trouble. Now, occasionally, children who were left out, not all of them died. Some of them were found, sort of taken care of in a patchwork way. But this was a common practice in the ancient world. The only people who consistently protested against this callous attitude toward vulnerable children were Jews and Christians. And many early Christians didn't just protest against this practice, they took in unwanted children. They adopted them into their families. They didn't just talk about the value of every human life. They showed the rest of the world what they believed by what, how they lived and how they treated people on a day-to-day -day basis. Another common practice in the ancient world was abortion. Abortion was entirely legal in the Roman Empire. There were pills and there were surgeons. The medical technology wasn't advanced as it is today, but the goal was the same, to end the life of a human child before birth. The early Christians consistently recognized abortion as a great evil and a violation of the Sixth Commandment. One of the earliest manuals of Christian teaching outside the New Testament from the earliest, early second century said this, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Tertullian, an African Christian leader writing around 200 AD wrote, it does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. The early Christians recognized that every human life belongs to God. Whether small or full grown, whether sick or healthy, whether rich or poor, whether Jew or Gentile or whatever nationality, whether male or female. The same belief motivated a Christian leader named Basil in the fourth century to open one of the first hospitals that offered free medical care to anyone who needed it. He opened its doors not just to ordinary sick people, but to lepers, people with an incurable disease who were shunned by almost everyone else, 
Everyone was afraid of them. There was no medical cure for leprosy. Basil said, no matter. We can honor them and love them and care for them as best we can as fellow human beings. Even if we don't have a medical cure for them, we won't leave them out. And we won't make them pay anything financially. What about us in 21st century America? How can we honor every human life that God has created and in doing so bear witness to the eternal life God has given us in Jesus Christ? In many ways, I think the early church has set an example for us to follow in fostering and adopting and mentoring children, not only resisting the practice of abortion, but also actively coming alongside those who feel they have no other option, caring for the sick and afflicted and honoring them all the way to the end of their earthly lives. Let me mention one other area that this commandment addresses. In 2022, over 130,000 people in the United States died by suicide or drug overdoses far more than were killed in homicides. How do Christians honor human life in a world where people are literally destroying themselves? By speaking truth and by showing love. What's the truth that this commandment speaks? Well, when it says you shall not murder, it doesn't just mean don't harm others. It also means don't harm yourself. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin, but suicide is a serious sin. It's an inherently selfish and destructive act, and it never brings glory to God. I've known people who've taken their own lives. I've officiated or attended some of their funerals. Knowing that someone took their own life never brings any shred of comfort to those who mourn. That fact only increases the anguish of grief. If you are ever tempted to think that life is not worth living, or that there's no way out of your situation, or that no one knows and no one cares, don't believe those lies. Instead, cry out to Jesus. He will hear your cry, and he is a merciful and compassionate Savior. He will meet you in your deepest darkness. He will bring you into his unconquerable light, and he will give you the strength you need one moment and one day at a time. Perhaps you know someone who is struggling along these lines who is caught in self-hatred, what does it look like to show love? It's not easy. Because these are not just physical afflictions that can be easily cured with some kind of med medical treatment. There may be a medical dimension, but these are mental and spiritual afflictions. Now, if someone absolutely refuses the help that they most need, you cannot force them to accept it no matter how hard you try and you cannot take on that burden of guilt to do for someone else what they are absolutely unwilling to do. Sometimes you may be watching from a distance, praying and waiting for a long time like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who never forgot his son no matter how far his son wandered from home. Sometimes you may be patiently nursing a wounded soul back to health through many long nights, through stops and starts, two steps forward, three steps back, but still walking with them. Sometimes you may need to speak hard truths, confront entrenched patterns of thinking and behaving. It can be hard and complicated, but wherever you are, ask God for the grace to show love and, to, and when appropriate, to speak truth, to honor every human life that God has created, and in doing so, to bear witness to the eternal life that we have been given 
in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, this commandment touches on a number of very weighty issues. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a merciful Savior. We thank you for how you honored every life that you came into contact with. We thank you for the value that we have as people created in your image, people whom you loved enough to come and give your life on the cross for us. We pray that you would help us to be people who live out this command, not only by refraining from what is evil, but by positively honoring and loving and serving every person whom you bring into our life. Give us the strength and the wisdom to do that, where that is difficult, where that is complicated, where we are weary, where we are tempted to lose heart. We pray that you would strengthen us by your life-giving Holy Spirit. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in you for the ways that we have fallen short. And we thank you for the power you've given us by the Holy Spirit to live as your ambassadors, to live as your image bearers, to live as your children in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.